as they're having a seat, I want to read some statistics to you that I thought you'd find interesting. Uh, this is from uh, the editors at religiontoday.com. This is a look at the world in which you live in. It is estimated that there are 2 billion Christians on planet Earth, or 33%. Now, when I say this, keep in mind every one of them hasn't been personally consulted to see if they're born again or not. This is the general umbrella of Christendom. At least 2 billion people worldwide claim to have some affili affiliation with Christianity. Uh, 1.2 billion of them are Muslims, 20%. 774 million are Hindus, 359 million are Buddhists, or 6%. Then there's 252 million, 4% tribal religions, 151 million atheists, or 3% of the world. 101 are followers of new religions, 101 million, 2%, uh, and 14.2 million Jews, 22.7 million Sikhs that are alive on the earth right now. Now, you're going to have a test on this afterwards, so I hope you memorized all those statistics. Here's something that comes from Barna Research that is a little more troubling. That's just the general facts. According to Barna Research Group, 4% of Christians versus 3% of non-Christians say they have consulted a medium or spiritual advisor other than a minister within the past month. 8% of the people believe in astrology that it can accurately predict the future. 7% of the adult public supports the view that crystals are a source of supernatural power. And 9% of the public thinks that tarot cards are a reliable source in the guidance of life decisions. Now, some of our folks went out to the campus of the local university, UNM, and interviewed some people. And here's just a couple of things that you'll hear, questions that they ask and comments. And we're going to take the first one and then comment on it. Roll it. You know, there's a lot of other philosophies or way of looking at things that have helped me also. I just kind of wonder, you know, what authority figures I, should I most respect and look up to and how to live, you know. So we didn't get the video feed here, but he was talking about searching other religions, other belief systems, looking for some basis of authority, example to follow other than Christianity. You know, I presume that this person made some kind of a commitment to know the Lord, but was seeking another religion. So what is the validity, you guys, in looking at other philosophies, religious philosophies, etc.? Well, I, I think there's, there's two ways of answering that. First of all, you want to, if you want to look into other religions for the sake of reaching out to them, that's fine to understand what it is that they believe so that you can have common ground on the definition of terms. But I think as a Christian, again, you've got to understand that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so as a Christian, dabbling in other forms, it means they're not getting out of Christianity what they maybe expected. So maybe they went into it with uh, some predispositions that basically said, this is what Christianity is supposed to do. Uh, but it's not healthy for someone to look outside of the only way, truth, and life, who is Jesus Christ, uh, for happiness or whatever it is that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be the, at least the way that I would answer it. When people say they're searching through philosophy for truth, they're looking for um, something that says this is what is right, wrong, good, bad, evil, not evil, the meaning of life. Philosophy is man's way of trying to subjectively within themselves say this is what's right and wrong. And generally, it comes down to if it's right or wrong for me. Whereas the scripture is God's revelation that declares objectively mm -hmm. what's right and wrong. So when people say I need to look for truth, the fact is the truth already exists. We can look at these other ways of thinking only to see how we can evangelize, how we can reach. But they must be measured by the truth that we already know. Mm -hmm. So searching for truth is meaningless when we already have truth. That's a good point. You know, Jesus said, you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. And there's nothing wrong with researching, like you mentioned, Paul. And there's nothing even wrong with agnosticism in its purest form. I admire a pure agnostic who is really, truly on a search. The truth of the matter is, I don't find many true agnostics. I find a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of excuses of why they don't believe, but I'm on a path, I'm on a search, I'm on a journey, I'm not sure. But you can be sure. And then once you find the truth, or I should say the Lord, the God of all truth, finds you, then there's no need to be open-minded any longer. He closes your mind because you know the truth. The truth has set you free. You know, a lot of people in our culture make the idea of an open mind some kind of great virtue. Oh, be open-minded. Oh, we're so open-minded. And that sounds good. I guess it sounds politically correct. The truth of the matter is there's a lot of people in this world that are looking for open minds to dump their garbage into. And so we need some discernment. And it would sound to me like this gentleman is searching, is maybe a genuine agnostic, and in just looking at him and listening to him makes me want to pray for him and then offer to him some tangible truth that is, as you said, Nelson, objective rather than subjectively a feeling. Let's have a, the next um, comment that we saw on our video. Why do certain churches and denominations believe that if you're not baptized through their church, and that's the only church, why, how, where do they come off saying that they're the only church, and if you're not baptized through their church, that you you're, know, going, you're to going to hell? Now, there's an interesting issue, an honest question, and a problem we all know about. Why is it that churches don't seem to get along with each other and become so exclusive saying our church is the only true church. If you don't get baptized by our elders in our church, you're really not authentic. Well, before dealing with the controversy, which is blown way out of proportion, 99% of the doctrines of the church everybody agrees on. We agree on the Bible and God and sin and salvation and Jesus dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and, and all of the essential doctrines. There just happens to be a few areas that get blown out of proportion. Some are legitimate areas of eschatology, how the end times are going to be, the perseverance of the saints, things where good scholars disagree. But then there are a few that churches or certain churches take and blow way out of proportion. For example... Unless you speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Or unless you're baptized by us, you're not really saved. And they make what is a peripheral doctrine, something that's not essential to salvation, the measure of whether or not you're saved, whether or not you really belong to the body of Christ, and they elevate it. This is not new. Paul faced the same things in Corinth and most this of his Paul? other letters. Well, yes, he's a lot older than he looks. But because You're well of, preserved, Paul. Because of Grecian formula and facelifts. <laughs> and, of course, the prayers of the saints. But <laughs> most of the New Testament letters were written because of controversies. There are some who will elevate a truth. Why is it there? I think, honestly, because Satan joined the church. I know this is going to sound harsh. Uh, Satan joined the church because he realized he couldn't beat it out. And so we get certain people who take certain doctrines and say, unless you believe this, you're not saved. And so you get Christians biting and devouring one another rather than witnessing to the lost. And it gives a good excuse. Sometimes it's a legitimate reason. Most of the time, it's a good excuse for people to deny the Lord. Well, I also think that it's a dumbing down of, of people. For the most part, people don't do what what we here at Calvary do. They don't go through the Bible line on line. They just quote their favorite passages and teach on their favorite topics, and they don't go through the Bible. So you really don't have a hermeneutic at work. You don't have the, the principles of biblical interpretation at work. Most people don't know what they are. So they don't know how to apply them in Bible study. They don't know how to study the Bible. So it's easy, I think, mm -hmm. for congregations like this to instill in people this fearful legalism that if you're not baptized in our church, or if you don't do this, that, and the other thing, uh, God's not happy with you. And uh, look, look at the cults out there. They all say the same thing. Our way is the only way. I think we need to say Jesus' way is the only way, but right. we need to have the, the wherewithal to say, how do I know what, what his way is? Right. You can't know Discern unless you it. study the scripture.
I think there's something else, too. There's a big difference between unity in the church and uniformity of thought. No two people in the world agree on everything. If they do, one of them isn't thinking. And there's issues, you mentioned, Nelson, within the pale of the Orthodox Church that would be considered non-essentials that we can talk about, we can debate over them, we can write uh, papers about, etc. And it's okay to do that. It doesn't mean we're, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ is going to be uh, undermined because of that. It's healthy, in fact. And there's a big difference between unity and uniformity. Um, also, you know, a lot of people say, as an excuse, the churches don't agree with each other. There's so much fighting and there's so much hypocrites. Listen, Jesus didn't say, follow my people. Jesus said, follow me. So let's get our eyes off of human beings, off of ministers, off of people who write books, off of Calvin, off of Arminius, and on to Jesus Christ. That's the one we're to follow. Let's just give these guys a big hand. Thank you guys for coming out. God bless you. The story of the Old Testament cannot be told without understanding the constant tension between the enforced monotheism of Israel and the surrounding pressure of idolatrous nations. Imagine the conflict. Israel, a nomadic band of liberated slaves, put on the platform of the Promised Land to illustrate the positive effects of worshiping the one true God. But at every border, Israel was confronted by all kinds of strange and seductive idolatry that competed for their affections. Consider Baal, a Semitic god, the most prominent deity in the Canaanite pantheon. This name means master or husband. The cult of Baal worship challenged Israel's faithfulness throughout their history because Jehovah was to be Israel's only love. Or look at the God of the Philistines that we consider tonight in the amazing story of 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. He is Dagon, the fish god, a strange god indeed. And though in the year 2002 we don't face the falcon god of the pharaohs or the fish god of the Philistines, the principles in our text are relevant to the spiritual competition that exists for your time and affection. As we will learn tonight, God will tolerate no rivals for the love of His people. Prepare to be challenged as we study the book of Samuel, line on line. All right then, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Let's turn to our text. There were two boys who were rambunctious little guys. They always disrupted the class. They always called attention to themselves. And... Being brothers, their mother decided, we've got to stop this. The only thing I know how to do is have the pastor of our church talk to these kids directly, maybe talk some sense into them. So, pastor came over, and he wanted to be subtle. He wanted them to draw their own conclusions and understand that God is everywhere. God sees everything. God is displeased when little boys don't act good in class. So the pastor said, boys, I'm going to ask you a question. Where is God? And the little boys, not understanding what was implied by this or the purpose of the questioning, just sort of looked at each other and went, huh? And the pastor was a little firmer the second time. He said, I'm going to ask you again. Surely you know the answer to this simple question. Where is God? Now the little boys were a little afraid because of the tone of the man's voice. The third time he was even more irate. He yelled out, where is God? The older brother turned to his younger brother and said, you know what? God is missing and they think we did it. Let's get out of here. <laughs> when I look around at our landscape of the United States of America, a nation that was once according to the coinage, one nation under God, I wonder, where is Jesus? Where is he? Where is all of this great history and heritage that our nation was built upon? Anybody can take even a cursory look at the words of the founding fathers of this nation and the first presidents, and they were all bold to not only say God generically, but mention the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you what's happened. 
It's been covered over. It's been muddled up by a generic, I would call it smorgasbord spirituality. That is, you pick and choose in the line of options what you want on your plate to worship. I'll have a little bit of Christianity. No, make that even a little less Christianity. Hold the guilt, please. I'm on a guilt-free diet. I would like a little bit of Krishna, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And we put it all together and we call it my personal religion. We are dealing with an era with the children of Israel where it is described every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we saw this played out with the Ark of the Covenant last week. They decided, let's get that great symbol of the presence of God, the Ark. And they made a mistake of the symbol of the presence of God versus the actuality of having God present with them. They thought, if I have the symbol, I have the substance. But they had the symbol and they didn't have the substance. And what had happened is they become very much like the pagan neighbors, very much like the Philistines who believed in bringing their gods into the battle with them. And they brought the symbol, but they didn't have the substance for the children of Israel. They were defeated before these Philistines. It was the Roman statesman Cicero who said that there is a seed of religion that has been planted in every man. It seems to be true. It seems that we grow up somehow believing there is a God, a force, something greater than ourselves. What is that exactly? We search. We ask for the meaning of life. We ask the questions. We who are parents are used to hearing the questions. Sometimes they're great questions. Daddy, how big is God? Oh, you would have to ask that, wouldn't you? Daddy, how old is God? Daddy, what does God like to do in his spare time? What is he doing right now? What does he love? What does he hate? How big is he? Etc. All of those questions that we find very difficult to answer, and so we have to move off into the abstract in answering those questions. Now, as we grow up, I notice that our answers don't get much better, generally speaking. Because I hear a lot of adults saying, well, I picture God as, and you fill in the blank, I picture God as not a judge, but like a big artist who created things and lets people do whatever they want, like Santa Claus, and, and would just let them get away with whatever their heart desires. After all, he's so merciful and generous. Or people will say, well, I don't picture God as a he, but as a she. God is a female. And there are so many different views of God around today, really not that much different than the days of the judges, the days of 1 Samuel, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The ark was a lucky charm that failed them. The rabbit's foot didn't perform. And so we have chapter 5, verse 1. The ark has now been captured. We remember last week, the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. Eli, their father, fell over backwards, broke his neck because he was an old guy. He was overweight, and he was watching where the ark was out by the gate. He heard that the ark was captured. His heart broke, and his neck broke. And now it says the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, one of the five Philistine city-states that existed. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. And you're going to read about those in just a little bit. These were the coalition or confederation of states. They settled in the coast of Israel, and they were bent on taking over the entire country and make it the country of Palestine, or the land of the... Philistines. So the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, 
they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon, and you saw his little picture on the video that introduced this tonight, was sort of a half fish, half man. He is depicted in the Ugaritic literature as being a fish on the bottom and a man on the top, like a male mermaid, sort of. He was the god of the grain, the god of the vegetables. He was the highest in the pantheon of the Philistine deities. In fact, some regarded him as the father of Baal, who was regarded as the ultimate deity by the Babylonians. These Philistines were polytheistic. They had many gods. Children of Israel had one God, one Lord, the God, the Lord. The Philistines had many. Now, in taking an emblem, an icon, a symbol of one's worship system and placing it inside your temple was tantamount to saying, we won. Our God is better than your God. Our God gave us the victory. And so the symbolism, there's the ark next to this statue of Dagon, this man on top, this fish on the bottom, as if to say, Yahweh is inferior to Dagon. It was quite a statement they were making. When the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. The children of Israel had no visible representation of God because God forbid them to have any kind of statue, any kind of icon, any kind of photograph, photograph, picture, they didn't have photographs, of God. Don't make an image, God said. And there's some reasons for that. And images never totally capture the character of God. They might tell you a bit about one aspect of his character, but they won't tell you the whole picture. So your mind will fixate on an isolated concept of God that won't be the full-orbed explanation of his character. Thus, the image can mislead a person as you gaze at it and you form a concept based upon what you see that might be an erroneous concept. So God said, look, I'm higher than everything. I'm higher than everyone. There's no image that can capture my essence, so don't even make one. However, the Philistines, the Canaanites, all of them had visualizations of their gods, visual representations. And so now we see a worship system that is becoming blended, smorgasbord-like. started with the ark. The priesthood was corrupt. The nation was corrupt. We have questions that have been given to us this week about tonight's study, and one came from uh, somebody in our fellowship, from our audience, and so we thought this would be a good time to interface that with our text. The question says, the Philistines worshipped fish gods, meaning Dagon. The Egyptian worshipped the sun. They worshipped many others besides that. The Indians worshipped cows. They still do today, as well as millions and millions of others. Why are these absurd false gods often accepted and the God of the Bible so often ridiculed? Well, whenever a person creates an image, makes an image of his or her God, it indicates something. It's telling you about that person. It indicates, number one, that person has lost the consciousness of the reality of God. They need a reminder. They have forgotten, and so they need a reminder when they come in their house or place of worship. Oh, yes, there's, a, there's an icon of my God. I remember. So it indicates they have lost in intimacy a consciousness of their God, and it also indicates that they're desperately trying to regain the consciousness that they lost. They lost it. They want it back. And so they have a reminder. You know, if you're in close fellowship and communion with the Lord, you don't need a reminder. Back in the 50s and 60s, there was a theology that arose, the God is dead theology. God was, God is powerful, was powerful, but God is not anymore. He is dead. 
And I had somebody tell me that one time. God is dead. And I said, no, he's not. I just spoke with him this morning. He's alive and well. I abide in him. This afternoon when I was driving down to the church facility and I was in the car and I was thinking of all of the crazy things I could listen to on the radio, what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on on our radio station, I just said, you know what? I don't want any noise. Lord, I just want to talk to you. I want to have fellowship with you. And we had just a great time. I'm sure I looked absurd going down the road. <laughs> Eyes open. But absurd nonetheless. Idolatry indicates there is not that immediate consciousness of God. I've lost it. I need, therefore, to regain it. It indicates we have a problem with an invisible God. You see, the Philistines, you might say, had it made. There were little icons, Dagon, oh, that's our fish god, oh, Baal, there's our god, oh, Ashtoreth. They had all of these visible representations of deity. Children of Israel were forbidden to do it. And frankly, we as humans have a problem with having a personal relationship with a person you can't see. That makes sense, doesn't it? And we, we capitalize on it as evangelicals. You need a personal relationship with God. And that's true. But that personal relationship looks a lot different than a personal relationship you and I would have. Because I can see you. I can see your body language. I can listen verbally to your words as my bones in my ear vibrate when you say something and my brain interprets it. So the relationship is different. It's awkward in some degrees. Even Isaiah said, Verily thou art a God that hides himself. We all remember H.G. Wells' famous story of the invisible man. The concept at first was really cool. Wouldn't it be neat to be invisible? You could be so many places that people wouldn't know you're there. But it got to be a curse. Because nobody would trust that guy. You don't trust somebody you can't see. And the story develops that being invisible isn't all that enjoyable nor to be coveted. And so the icons were developed. And even today, there are churches like the Eastern Orthodox Church that has icons in their worship system. And these icons are not only reminders of God, not only do they tell a story about the Gospels, a miracle of Jesus, a sermon that he preached, that's part of it, is the education process. The other part of it is there is the belief that God actually inhabits somehow, somehow mystically, that image, so that I am relating to God as I relate now to this image. It embodies him. If I encounter this image of Jesus, I'm encountering Jesus Christ himself. Now the problem is solved for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was manifested, the Bible says, God shone forth. He manifested the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you look at the pictures, the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, you see the character of God in plain form. We see exactly what God is like. Now in verse 3, when the people of Ashdod, let's pick up on this part because it happens twice, rose up early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So now notice, they took Dagon and set it in its place again. This poor God could only lay there and couldn't even say, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> he had a mouth, but he couldn't say anything. They carved it on him, but he was helpless. So let's help our God up. Our God's in trouble. How ironic the symbolism meant by having the ark next to Dagon, Dagon is better than Yahweh. They come to the temple in the morning, and there is this God as if bowed down in worship before the ark. <laughs> I love it. What a sense of humor God has. <laughs> now when they arose early the next morning, they had picked him up once. 
there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only the torso of Dagon was left in it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. It would seem that the first episode on the first day went by largely undetected. They thought it's a fluke, it's a coincidence. So what are the odds? But, but still, it, you know, it just fell down. Maybe it was a tremor. Maybe it wasn't set correctly, but it fell. We picked it up, no big deal. But the second day, they're beginning to get the message. It's down, but this time the head's off and the hands are off, and they knew what that meant because in ancient times, when one people would subdue another people, often as a token of total subjection or total destruction, once the enemy was killed, the head would be cut off from the body. When the Philistines kill Saul, they will string his body on the walls of Bethshean and severing his head from off of his armor and his body. Or they would cut the hands off, symbolic of my enemy is dead. And I think God, I think that the Lord is showing not only the difference between victory and non-victory, but a dead God and a living God. My enemy's dead. He can't fend for himself. you got to pick him up, and he doesn't have a head nor hands. It's a very, very interesting and, I think, profound kind of a statement. And then there's the commentary in verse 5, neither the priests of Dagon or any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So... They're so superstitious that because this happened, they won't even put their foot on the threshold. It's sacred somehow. Now, we have another couple of questions that we got this week, and um, they were from people that we got in different locations around the city at UNM and other places, and uh, this is a clip filmed at a bookstore that I think interfaces right perfectly with our section of the study. I'm standing at a local bookstore, actually, in a <laughs> section where people might come if they're looking for information on God, if they're shopping for information on God. And the question that it brings to my mind is, if people are finding peace in a non-Christian religion, what motive do they have to change and become a Christian when there seem to be so many other ways? That's a good question. And there's another thing I want you to hear first that goes along with it, and then we'll look at them both together in light of our text. Let's, let's play the second one. Skip. These books are yes. just a sample <laughs> of the popularity of the trend toward making a god in your own image. Take a look at this clip from this particular author, and then we have a question for you right after that. He parked the same as Franklin in different terms, that Christ forgives your forgiveness comes maybe not from Christ, from a different area, but basically we are forgiven. I think yes. I think, uh, you know, it's a question of semantics. What Franklin is calling sin, uh, we are calling ignorance. Do remember that some very good people have done awful things in the name of God. In fact, if you think, look at the history of humanity, more people have killed each other in the name of one version of God. And God is used in most wars. God He's on is somebody's Before side. the Crusades, during the Crusades, today, wherever we go, it's in the name of God that people are killing each other. The exclusive claims of Jesus are obvious to Christians, but seem to escape those students that we talked to on UNM's campus. What would you say to someone who is open to spirituality, but close to the idea that Jesus is the only way? Well, I would like to answer uh, the question. First of all, now with all due respect, religion is big. Religion is on the rise. Religion, spirituality is everywhere. I have never seen in my lifetime as much open spirituality as I see now in the United States of America. But it is very generic or Eastern that is acceptable. The exclusive claims of Christianity, as you saw Deepak Chopra responding to Franklin Graham, that's what he was referring to, who called the problem with man being sin, and Deepak called it ignorance. You see an Eastern bent and an Eastern push or a recasting or redefinition of sin. 
But George Barna, the researcher, said this, Americans are probably more interested in spiritual matters than they have been at any other time in the past 40 years. People are looking for inner peace, especially today after 9-11. People are looking for real answers through spirituality, but not necessarily through tr truth. And there is a preconception, there's an assumption that says basically all religions are the same. Every religion has a piece of truth. One would call it this, another would call it that. This God and that God and the other God are basically all the same. They're simply different titles for the same being birthed out of our own experience or our own background. Now the question was asked, um, if someone is following a non-Christian religion and finding peace in their lives, what motive do they have to change and become a Christian? And here's the answer. We touched on it in our interview. Objective truth is the motivation. Well, why should I change if I feel at peace? Truth, that's why. If you put all of your eggs in a subjective basket, so to speak, called a feeling of peace, that is very, very unwise. Oh, but I feel good. I feel like this is the right way. Well, you know, all the people who hijacked airplanes and drove them into trade centers and pentagons also felt that what they were doing was right. They felt it was right. To them, that was their standard. There is such a thing called objective, not subjective, not how I feel, but objective truth. As you look at it from the outside and you test it. Now to say, to assume that all gods are the same of all the religion betrays an ignorance. It's an ignorance of the religion in question. For instance, if you look at the writings of Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, and look at the description of God, you find that God and creation are the same. There is a, a seamless garment of the universe that is called. God is not distinct from his creation. It's called monism. God and creation are one with each other. But if you read the writings of Buddha, the teachings of the Buddhists, you find that God is an impersonal being, an impersonal force or deity. If you read the writings of the Gospels, the Old Testament, you find that God is a personal creator separate and distinct from his creation overall, not one with, not uh, a seamless garment, but separate and distinct, who holds all men into account. So, it is impossible for God to be limited and unlimited at the same time. It's impossible for God to be one and the same with his creation and yet distinct and separate from his creation at the same time. It's impossible for God to be all-powerful and not powerful at the same time. The, there's a mutual exclusivity of these religious systems. So to say that, well, it's all the same betrays an ignorance of the basic tenets of these religions. Or the assumption is, and probably this is more than likely the assumption with some of these questions. The assumption is... It doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you're sincere. Let's not make anybody mad. Let's not point any fingers. The world has enough wars, enough tragedy, enough disagreement. Let's just all get along. Let's hug. Big group hug. It's what we need. It's all about love. And of course, if you love people, you can't disagree with people. You just have to let them go on and never say anything because it really doesn't matter as long as you're sincere. Okay, tell that to a blind man at the edge of a cliff who asks you for directions. He says, excuse me, which way do I step? Now, you could say, well, it doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere. <laughs> it's all good. No, it's not. At that point, tolerance is not a virtue. Truth is virtuous. Tell him the truth. Step backwards. Don't keep going in that direction. And so to look at things subjectively might feel good temporarily, but they must be tested objectively. And it's important to examine the claims of Jesus Christ. I think anybody who would examine the claims of Christ would walk away and say, you know, he's different than I thought. I did. I assumed Jesus was a certain way until I actually read what he said. 
and read what people said about him. And I looked and saw that his claims were both exclusive on one hand and all-encompassing on another. Exclusive in who he was, all-encompassing in that he would forgive anyone and everyone who would come to him and ask him to do that. Whether they were from India or America or the Middle East or South America, didn't matter. Young or old, God loves you. I want you to turn quickly to Psalm 115. Keep Dagon in mind now. He's the guy they had to pick up. And look at Psalm 115 for just a moment. The psalmist draws a beautiful analogy between the true God and the false religious systems of the day. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but your name give glory. Because of your mercy and because of your truth, why should the Gentiles, the nations, say, Where now is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. Can you picture Dagon? What a description of their worship system. First of all, he says, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Can you imagine how frustrating it would be to worship a God that can't reveal his will to you, couldn't give you direction in life? is completely silent, has no revelation whatsoever, we have a reliable source of revelation. They have mouths, but they can't speak. You know why? The man put a mouth on the deity. The deity was fashioned by the man. They made God into their own image. Not true creation where God makes man in his own image. Then it says... Eyes they have, but they do not see. The poor God is unable to fend for himself because he can't speak for himself. He can't walk for himself. He can't see anything. I laugh every time I read the book of Genesis when Jacob and Rachel flee from Laban in Padan Aram and they go back to Jacob's home. And before they leave, Rachel steals the household idols, the gods of her father, stuffs them in her pack and runs away. Laban, hot on their trail, catches up. And one of the first questions, why did you steal my gods? What a classic question. You stole my gods. Your gods are that lame that they're stealable? What are they, little victims? We holding them hostage? You'll never see your God again. They have eyes, but they can't see. They're absolutely powerless. It's because they're fashioned by a human being. They have ears, but they do not hear. So you pray to them, and you can look at them and feel really good. Oh, man, I lit that candle, and I looked at that statue, and I prayed, and I felt so good. So what? Unless it's the true and living God, so what? They have ears, but they can't hear. Elijah took advantage of this truth rather mockingly in 1 Kings chapter 18 when the prophets of Baal cried out from morning until noon to their gods. And remember, Elijah said, cry louder. Maybe your gods are on a vacation or they're using the bathroom and they're predisposed. They can't hear you. Jump around a little bit more. Speak a little bit louder. Then finally Elijah got up to the plate and he said just a very short few sentences to God 
I don't think he yelled really loudly and said, oh, God. I just think he prayed very gently, very deliberately, because he knew there's a difference between a God that has ears that can't hear versus the true and the living God. And the results were profound. They have hands. They do not handle. They have feet, but they don't walk. Ooh, that's interesting. You have to go to the temple to see your God. You have to use your feet to go to your God. Your God can't come to you unless you steal your gods, put them up in the sleeping bag, and run away with them. When I worked in Westminster Community Hospital in Southern California before I moved here many, 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 many years ago, I was called in on call to do an emergency scan and test on a woman. I forget her condition, but I do remember what I saw when I came into the emergency room. I saw a woman on a bed with a stack of books on her abdomen. I remember what she had, abdominal pain. That was it. And they tried to discover the source of the abdominal pain, and she had a, a whole stack of books on her stomach. So I, you know, jokingly said, hey, do you think the problem could be the books that you have crushing your belly? Maybe we should remove those. And I looked at them, and they were differing holy books of different religions. I mean, there was Jewish books, there was Hindu books, there were some uh, different Christian cult books, there was the Bible, there was all of these different books that she was clinging on to, clutching. Doing her no good, but it was like, this is my statement, this is what I trust in, I don't know what to do other than I've read all of these books or I'm reading all of these books and I need help and I can't afford to make anybody mad. So I just believe all of them. We had a fabulous time together as I shared the gospel with her and said it can be so much easier to get rid of all those things. You can have a relationship with the living God. He can control your life. You can be set free. She was trusting in things that had no power. What's interesting about this is that final statement where he says in verse 8 of Psalm 115, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. If your God is false, that's what you will become. If your God is true and alive, you will become true and alive. You will become like the God you worship. And you just watch a person's life and see what unfolds, see what develops, and you can see if he's worshiping a true or a living God. And back to our text. Verse 6 shows you the difference dramatically. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. What a contrast between the hands of Dagon broken off because he's dead versus the hand of God, the living God working in judgment. And it's an interesting judgment. I don't quite understand it, but it says he ravaged them with tumors. And one of the translations says hemorrhoids. And some of the commentaries say hemorrhoids. And I just couldn't really get into that as I was studying it this week and trying to picture it. It's like too much information. Don't want to go there. So I kind of rejected that translation just for obvious reasons and researched a little further and found out that the Hebrew means literally swelling. And so the more modern interpretation is that there was a bubonic plague and the little swelling sores or the buboes were due to the rats that infested the area, which you'll read about, that caused a bubonic plague and they were the swelling or the sores on the skin uh, that accounted for this word here. The other interpretation, these were hemorrhoids, and you know, really don't need any commentary on that. <laughs> and when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves, all the lords of the Philistines, that's the kings of those five cities, 
And they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried away the ark to Gath. They sent it away 12 miles to the east. So it was after they carried it away, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a heavy destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, six miles north. These, these are all Philistine cities. i got to say, they're not too bright. Okay? If this ark is doing all the damage, don't send it to your friends. <laughs> don't send it to your own people. Give it back to Israel. It's like hot potato here. They're, oh, don't, don't pass it to them. But it's the same people. They didn't quite get that. They will. So it was the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites, Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place, that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all of the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, bubonic plague, hemorrhoids. You pick the interpretation. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord is in the country of the Philistines for seven months. Now here's basically what's going on. They want to get rid of this thing. So they get together, the elders, the theologians, the board of idolatry. And the consensus is, send it back to the God of Israel, but send it with a, they call it, trespass offering. A trespass offering. Which is interesting because it's almost like an admission of their sin and their guilt. We have sinned against God. We're guilty. We have to have some compensation, some signal that we get the message. And so here's the trespass offering that they come up with. Verse 4, they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors. <laughs> and I don't need to go through the interpretations of that again, do I? And five golden rats. That's why they think it was the bubonic plague, because that would be the host creature that brought the plague. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, remember there's five cities, so five tumors, <laughs> five rats. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and the images of your rats that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When they did mighty things, he did mighty things among them. They did not let the people go so that they might depart. What an interesting thing that they would correlate the plagues of Egypt with this plague of Yahweh. They were familiar with what happened in Egypt. And it's almost like an admission of sin and close to being a repentance. Not quite. They're still steeped in their idolatry, but they know that they are dealing with a deity more powerful than what they have known, and they want to appease that deity. So they send the golden tumors and the golden rats. In the next few verses, they come up with a plan. The plan is, let's send it back. Let's send the Ark of the Covenant back. Let's send it back with the offerings. Let's send it back on a cart. Let's send it back in a way that we know this has been the hand of God. So, number one, they select cows that have never been under the yoke before. These would be untrained animals. You'd put a yoke on them, you let them go, and typically they wouldn't go anywhere. They would just stand there. But if this is really God, if this is Yahweh, if this is the God that we're dealing with, let's get two cows that have never been trained, plus let's get a couple of milk cows who have just given birth, they have calves, and separate the calves from the mother so that naturally they wouldn't want to leave their calves, they would want to go to their calves, 
if they go out of town toward the children of Israel's territory, we know that this really is the Lord who had his hand against us. Sure enough, they put these cows out there, these oxen, they put a yoke on them, take their calves away, and they head straight toward Ilis, uh, children of Israel territory, Bet Shemesh. Verse 12, the cows headed straight for the road to Bet Shemesh. And they went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Bet Shemesh. Now here's why I think this city is mentioned. Bet Shemesh, the city or the valley of the sun, that's where Samson was born, you remember, back in Judges. The valley of Sorek, where Delilah came from, she was a Philistine chick. But Bet Shemesh was originally a city of the Levites. The Levites were in charge of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. This was their baby coming home. They would know what to do with it. Now when the people of Bet Shemesh, verse 13, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the Ark, they rejoiced to see it. The Ark came into the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord. They knew how to do it. And the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them in the on the large stone. And the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. Now after, or now these are the gold tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, the five cities, and the gold rats. According to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. Now, now get this. Then he struck the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Okay, we have God showing up the Philistines. This we understand. We have the Philistines putting the ark of God on a cart. They didn't know any better. You'll read in subsequent chapters that a guy named Yuza who steadies the ark, part of the children of Israel, in steadying the ark on a cart, he falls down dead. Now you have Levites who get struck by God because they look inside the ark. Why? They should have known better, that's why. Now here's a principle, and I want you to note it. God holds us to a higher level of accountability than your garden variety pagan. Instead of looking around the world and saying, but everybody is doing it, but they did it, they put it on a cart, they may have even looked inside, we don't know. But these Levites should have known their Bibles. Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, God says, you shall not go inside and look at the ark as it is being uncovered. You're not to look inside it. They looked inside. Why? Curiosity, perhaps. They wanted to see... The tablets of the law are really in there. That golden pot of manna, maybe it's there. That rod of Aaron that budded, maybe that's there. Let's check it out. But God held these Levites to a higher standard. Now, it could be that they were absolutely ignorant. Maybe they didn't remember the scripture. After all, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Or maybe it was rebellion. We got a question this week from our audience that says, a lot has been said about America being postmodern with a generation that is biblically literate, biblically illiterate. Can we get over this barrier and reach out to friends with the gospel? We are in a culture that is biblically illiterate, and it could be that the Levites of that time were biblically illiterate. They've forgotten that scripture. They've forgotten about how to deal with the ark. Whether it was rebellion or ignorance, we live in a society today that is very similar. Many people don't know the Bible. Many churches don't teach the Bible. 
What's the answer? Well, I'll give you three ways that we can reach out with the gospel, as this question says, to unsaved friends with the gospel. Number one, understand the times that you live in aren't the times of your grandma and grandpa. There is no moral consensus today like there used to be. Back in the 1950s in our country, there was a moral consensus. If you asked five people on the streets about right and wrong, you would basically get the same answer back then. Today, you'll get a number of answers. We have gone backwards in time. We have gone backwards to the 5th century BC, Greece, where Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. I decide what is right. You decide what is right. What's right for me may not be right for you. So there's no basis or consensus of absolutes. In a pluralistic society like the one in which we live, to talk about absolute values doesn't get very popular press. Those are the times in which we live. Number one, know the times in which you live. Number two, be able to give good, articulate answers to people who have questions. In our evangelism in this generation, we need to know more than just the gospel. We need to be able to know and articulate the answers to the good questions that unbelievers have about the singularity of Christ, the validity of the scripture. See, when I was a kid, I grew up in a religious home. I wasn't born again, but I was religious. And anytime people question me about my religion, you know the best I could do, the best I could say is, well, I don't know, dude. I have my belief, you have yours. That was it. When I came to Christ in 19... And people started asking me about my Christianity. I didn't have good answers. And I said, you know what? I'm going to become literate. I'm going to get the answers. I want to be able to stand up to doctors and nurses and lawyers and unbelievers in the classroom. When they ask me a question, I want to be able to give them a solid, good answer, a reasoned answer. Like it says in Peter, we should be able to give, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. So I started doing that. I was confronted with the philosophies of Kierkegaard and Kant and Hegel and David Hume and, and Thomas Paine, and they were intimidating until I found out that the answers are even better than the questions, that they're solid, and I gained a whole new confidence so understand the times in which you live in today. It's very similar to every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Learn what the answers are apologetically, evangelistically. Find out what roadblocks people have and, and, and no more of the, well, I don't know. I have my belief. You have yours. Give them good answers. They're everywhere. Every Christian bookstore has a section on apologetics. Pick up a book. Pick up a tape series. Become, it, become literate. Third, Live what you believe. I don't think the biggest obstacle to Christianity is that we don't have good answers. I think we don't always live what we say we believe. I think hypocrisy is the big roadblock. I think when the world starts seeing the church live like the church and Christians act like Christians, they go, okay, <laughs> well, there it is. Understand the times in which you live, articulate good, solid answers, and live the Christian faith. And when the men of Bet Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent the messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim. I mispronounced that on purpose because the Hebrew way is just a little more difficult sounding. Kiriath-Yarim would be the right way. The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it with you. And if you read on a little further, you find out that the ark stays there 20 years. Nobody touches it. You can see why. Tumors, rats, death. And until David takes it in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6, up to Jerusalem from Kiriath Yarim to give it its house, its temple. 
it remains there. So now, for this length of time, the children of Israel have no approach, no atonement, no sacrifices. The ark was central to that. That's gone. No atonement for sin during that time. Desperate years indeed. Look at verse 2, just as we close of chapter 7. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So just remember, you and I will become like the God we serve and we worship. If he's true and living, you'll become true and living. If he's false, you'll become false. If he's selfish, you'll become selfish. If he's generous, you'll become generous. You become like the God you worship and you serve. And my question is, have you really authentically tried the true and the living God? The true and the living God. One time a lecturer came and was going through the United States talking about how bad religion is for the people. Especially Christianity. It's for mindless people who refuse to think and stand on their own two feet. And he berated it all evening. As he was talking, a drunk stood up and kind of moved to the front and started peeling an orange and eating it segment by segment, which, which everybody noticed, and the speaker noticed that it was a distraction. And after the guy was done speaking, the drunk said he was an ex-drunk. He was a reformed drunk. But everybody knew him as the town alcoholic. He said to the speaker, excuse me, the orange that I just ate, was it sweet or sour? The speaker said, you idiot. I don't know that. I haven't tried it. And so this reformed, saved alcoholic said, then how can you knock Christianity and Jesus Christ if you've never tried him? And maybe you've come tonight and you've looked at Christians sort of the back of the hand. And you think, oh yeah, I'll listen to this guy speak. This weird guy who speaks at Calvary Chapel. Sits in that stool and opens his mouth and speaks on Sundays and Wednesdays. Leading all those mindless people who don't think. I would submit to you, you have never authentically tried the true and the living God. Because all you have to look forward to is a dead philosophy. You give your life to him and you'll see changes. Heavenly Father, as we close tonight, we pray that that would occur. That we would become like you, alive, full of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship. 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 Let's stand together